Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Theodore Dostoevsky, who wrote the book The Brothers Karamazov, a great Russian novel, had this to say when it comes to the Christian faith, and I quote, The most pressing question on the problem of faith is whether a man, as a civilized being, can believe in the divinity of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, for therein rests the whole of our faith. And I think he nails it and gets it exactly right. Well, there's no story in the Bible, I believe, that puts on display outside the resurrection more gloriously the divinity of Christ than the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Because what you have here is a miracle that could only be accomplished by deity, by God himself. And in fact, this story is, is so popular, not only among children, but also adults, and so significant in the life of Jesus. This is fascinating. The only miracle recorded in all four Gospels besides the resurrection is the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Matthew records in chapter 14, Mark here in chapter 6, Luke chapter 9, John chapter 6. Mark, we will also discover later, has a second feeding, but there it is the feeding of the 4,000, and you find that in a different location and also in Mark chapter 8, verse 1 through verse 10. So important is this event in the historical record of Jesus that John chapter 6 and verse 15 says that following the miracle, the crowds actually tried to take him by force and make him king. In other words, they drew the conclusion that anyone who can do this must be the Messiah. He must be the promised deliverer of Israel. And so they thought, now is the time to throw off the Roman yoke. Now is the time to organize. Now is the time for a national movement that indeed will restore the glory to Israel that she enjoyed under the reign, particularly of David and also of Solomon. However, we will discover that Jesus will refuse their advance. Because this is not the kind of kingdom that he came to establish when he came the first time. In fact, we will see next week in Mark chapter 6, verse 46, he actually withdraws and pulls away from them because he knows, yes, he is going to be the ultimate king of kings and lord of lords, but there is a cross that is in the way or that comes first before the throne. Now, in these verses, there are just a bazillion lessons that we could glean from these verses. I had such a great time studying this for many, many weeks. But basically, I'm going to build our study tonight around three movements or three major ideas that I think naturally arise from the text that help us have insight as to why it is that God in all four Gospels records the feeding of the 5,000 men, but the 20,000 people. Well, note with me, first of all, in verses 30 through 32, that we begin by noting that we should find rest from ministry like Jesus. Mark returns to his account of the ministry and the mission of the, of the disciples following that interlude that we saw in chapter 6, verse 14 through 29, where he records the execution uh, and the murder 
of John the Baptist. The text says there in verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and they told him all that they had done and taught. Interestingly, Mark only uses the word apostles twice in his gospel back in chapter 3, verse 14, and here in chapter 6, verse 30. And here the idea is not so much of the office of the apostle that will become more significant when we get into the book of Acts, but here it really has just the idea of a missionary. It carries the idea that they were missionaries who had been sent out by Jesus on assignment, and now they have returned, and they're rehearsing what happened, all that they had done and taught. In other words, Jesus sent them out with a job, just like he sends you and me out with a job. They went out with his authority. They went out in his power, and God blessed with wonderful success their preaching and teaching ministry. Authorized by him, empowered by him, they could and they did experience the blessings of Christ on their lives. The same is true for you and me. Uh, We are his authorized missionaries, whether we're here in in Raleigh, North Carolina, or whether we are overseas in China or Turkey or Indonesia or down in Brazil. And if we go in his authority, if we go with his power, we can indeed anticipate that some will reject, but some will believe and receive the message that we have proclaimed. And so basically what they do is they come back and now it's time to debrief. Uh, Now it's time for them to give a report of what had happened. And he says there, they told all that they had done and all that they had taught. So they come back, they debrief, they evaluate what worked well and and brought success, what did work so well and brought failure. Uh, Were we faithful to preach the message? Were we faithful to carry out the ministry that you had given us? And in essence, what you have is a synopsis of how Jesus mentored men. In other words, he would show them and teach them. He then would send them out. He would have them return, and he would have them report and evaluate. And the fact of the matter is, you really can't improve on that method. Uh, He taught them. He showed them. He sent them out. He brought them back. They gave a report. They evaluated. And then, of course, he would send them out Again, a wonderfully effective model of discipleship. And so we should, like them, be grateful that God calls us to do this, and we should rejoice in God's blessings on our ministry. It says again, they share with the Lord all that they had done and all that they had taught. Now, if you were to ask the question tonight, not familiar with our previous studies, well, what did they do? Just go back to chapter 6, verse 12 and verse 13. They went out. And they proclaimed that people should repent. Uh, They cast out many demons, and they anointed many with oil who were sick, and they healed them. And so they preached the gospel of repentance, just like John the Baptist, chapter 1, verse 4, just like Jesus, chapter 1, verse 15. Also, they went out, and they healed many, and they cast out demons. All right, there is a tornado warning, so we're going to have to... Stop. No way that I can do justice unless I keep you here till like 8 o'clock. But I'm not going to do that because my wife would be the first to beat me viciously for doing that. And so I'm not going to do that. Actually, she would not. But I, I, what I will do is this. Can I give you an overview of what happens? Then we'll come back uh, next week and walk through it verse by verse, you know, step by step, so that we can um, uh, draw all out of the text 
that is in here. So let me hit the high points uh, tonight, and, and I'll keep it brief and, and let you go. And uh, then that way we can kind of anticipate what we'll see next time because, again, this text is uh, – I spent probably 25 hours studying it because I got carried away in a good way because there's just so much here – uh, that people miss. So here's what we'll do very quickly. I'm just going to kind of do what I would call is a running commentary, commenting on the verses uh, as if we were just doing a bare bones. Uh, here's what the text says kind of thing. Then we'll come back next time, bring the notes back, and then we'll flesh it out in more detail. So take your Bible again. Chapter 6, verse 30. The apostles, as we noted a moment ago, only used twice in the book. The, the word means sent ones, but here in context, it carries primarily the idea of missionaries, those sent out as the authorized representatives of Jesus. They returned to Jesus and they told him all that they had done and taught. And as I mentioned a moment ago, you go back to chapter 6, verse 12 and verse 13 before he gives us, uh, breaks away to the, the execution of John the Baptist. And he tells us there, they preach repentance, same message preached by John the Baptist, same message preached by Jesus. Uh, just a quick comment, anytime you hear someone uh, say that repentance is not essential to respond to the gospel, they've got a big problem with John the Baptist, they've got a big problem with Jesus, they've got a big problem with the apostles, and they've got a big problem with Peter on the day of Pentecost. No, repentance, we turn from sin, faith, we turn toward Christ. They are flip sides of the same coin, but both are essential in a proper response to the gospel. So, they've reported... It's great, but they're tired. They've been out working hard, just like Jesus. So verse 31, he says to them, he commands them, basically, come away by yourselves to a desolate place. You'll, you'll actually see that word there uh, in verse 31. Uh, you'll see it again in verse 32, and you'll see it again in verse 35. And by the way, a desolate place is not a desert place. It just means a deserted place. You say, well, how do you know it's not a, a, a desert place? Because he tells them over there in chapter 6, verse 39, to sit down on the green grass. Well, there's no green grass for 20,000 people to sit on in a desert. And so it just means a place away from the city, out in the, uh, uh, the, the, you know, the, the hinderlands, out there in the, in the country. That's what it, instead of being in the city there to go uh, into the country. So they go there to rest a while, but they can't rest. Many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. If you remember back in chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus had no leisure to eat either because of his ministry. And so what he has experienced, they're now experiencing as well. But Jesus understands. Uh, yes, some people rust out because they are lazy. But some people burn out because they work too hard and they never take a break. And in fact, some people in ministry uh, actually uh, think of themselves as super spiritual because they work so hard and they never take a day off. They never go on a vacation. They never get away. And the fact of the matter is they're not being super spiritual. They're actually being sinful because what they've almost done, if not done, is they've turned ministry into an idol. And the ministry is what drives them not their love and their, their desire to serve and honor the Lord Jesus Christ. So he tells them, let's get away. So they go away in a boat, it says there in verse 32, to a desolate place. But unfortunately, verse 33, many saw them, saw them leaving, recognized them, 
ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So when they go ashore, verse 34, and you know this phrase is very popular in Mark. It's not just a crowd. It is a great crowd that is now there waiting for them. Now, you might think Jesus got ticked, got irritated, got frustrated. No, he had compassion. Uh, We would say today his heart went out to them. And as a result of that, we see that he began to teach them many things. Now, you'll see in your notes, I develop at some length this wonderful theme in the Bible of God is our shepherd. I point out for you, I do it almost off the top of my head. I don't have my notes in front of me right now. But you go back to Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. That's Jesus. You come to Ezekiel 34 where you've got the evil shepherds of Israel being criticized. And the shepherds there are not the literal shepherds, but the religious leaders. And God takes them apart for their uh, devouring and, and abusing the people. And he says, I, I, I will send a shepherd. In fact, he says, I will send my shepherd David. And, of course, he doesn't send literally David. He sends the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, who comes to care for them and to minister to them. John 10. He's the good shepherd. First uh, Peter five. He is the chief shepherd. Uh, Hebrews thirteen twenty. He is the great shepherd. And perhaps one of my favorites is in Revelation chapter seven, where you've got uh, those who've been saved out of the great tribulation, who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And it says there that He will be their shepherd. Uh, He will lead them to living water, and they will never hunger. They will never thirst. There will be no more pain. Basically, it's almost an anticipation of what heaven is going to be like in Revelation 21 and 22. So it's a beautiful theme throughout the entirety of the Bible that he is our shepherd. And here's what's so neat. There are sheep who are in need of a shepherd. He is their shepherd. And what's the first thing he does? He teaches them many things. Point. What is their greatest need, spiritual or physical? Answer, spiritual. They need to be fed the Word of God. Well, evidently he did this for quite a while because verse 35, when it grew late, his disciples came to him and they said, number one, this is a desolate place. We're out here in the countryside. Number two, the hour is late. Number three, and it's actually an imperative. They command Jesus, send them away. Uh, to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. So basically, with some degree of frustration and irritableness, they tell Jesus, tell them to get out of here and move on. Well, Jesus answered them, verse 37, with an imperative. You give them something to eat. In other words, they fire off at Jesus, send them away. And Jesus says, no, you give them something to eat. Well, needless to say, that puts the disciples in a quandary because as we learn from verse 44, we don't learn it till the end. It's interesting how Mark backloads the information here. Those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Uh, the other Gospels, I believe it's Matthew, notes that they were 5,000 men plus children, women and children. So on a conservative estimate, back then, as you know, they had bunches of young'uns. And so uh, you're not talking about a family of four. You're talking to families of six, eight, ten, and who knows how many. Easily, most Bible scholars would agree, 20,000 minimum have gathered out there in this desolate place in the countryside. And there's a problem. They've been there all day. Uh, They didn't come prepared to stay all day. Uh, It's late. They're hungry. 
Hungry people are not happy people. And so what do we do? They tell him, send them on. He says to them, you give them something. Well, they say, well, wait a minute. Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? Now, in your notes, it's noted that the denarii basically is a day's wage. They speculate and they basically hypothesize or draw the conclusion they would need at least 200 denarii. So basically they need about two-thirds of a year's salary, that's their estimate, to feed all these people as if they could go into the various villages and cities and get that kind of food and get it back out there in time to feed these people before it's dark. Of course, that couldn't happen either. So they don't have enough money. They don't have enough time. And the odds that the surrounding villages have the sufficient resources is next to zero. So we've got a serious issue here, and yet Jesus throws this into their face. So they, they begin to, you know, logically, like we all do in our, in our unbelief, logically, well, all right, how much money would it take? Well, we don't have that much money. And so then he kind of almost, it feels like, rubs it in their face. Well, uh, how many loaves do you have? And the implication is they just stand there and look at him like, what? What, what kind of question is that in light of the situation? And you do note, it is in your notes, the next two verbs, go and see, are imperatives. He commands them, well, go. See what you can find. So they're at least obedient. And so they go out, uh, they search out, and it comes back. We've got five loaves. And two fish. And I believe it's John's gospel that gives us the information, only John's gospel, that they got this from a little boy. And so somebody's mother at least prepared properly for the possibility that they might spend a long day away. So one little kid has got five loaves and two fish. And it is important to note, back in the notes, uh, I think I used the word uh, biscuits and sardines or something like that, because these would not have been loaves of bread like we think of loaves of bread. They would have been small little, you know, flat cakes. And the fish would not have been large fish like a big bass. Those of you that like to go out and waste your time in a boat trying to catch a fish running around with a hook, I'd never have fathomed that either. Uh, it's not a big one. Uh, it's a tiny one. Uh, it's the kind that you throw back or you don't tell anybody that you caught, all right? It's, it's that kind, all right? So there's no, there's, there's no solution here. And that's exactly what God wants. He wants them to be brought to the end of themselves so that they can only do one thing, turn to him. Look to him and see what he would do. Now, it is interesting to raise this question. Had they had enough faith, could they have actually fed the 5,000? I mean, after all, Jesus gave them his power and authority. They have cast out demons. They have healed the sick. And yet it's almost like they go deaf, dumb, and blind just a few days later. And so they basically say, here's what we have, but... One of the other Gospels says, well, what good is this with so many? That brings us then to verse 39. He commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass, which tells us it may have been a countryside place, but it's not a desert place. Furthermore, there's all sorts of imagery here, uh, brothers and sisters, uh, of the Exodus. Uh, there was a guy back in uh, the book of Exodus named Moses 
who was able to provide food for the nation of Israel as they were moving their way into the promised land. And that Moses, by the way, asked God, and I note that in your notes as well, he asked God to send the nation a shepherd who could take care of them. Well, the the greater Moses, uh, the greater Joshua, the greater David is here. And here he fulfills that role of Moses. And so they all sat down in groups on the green grass. And they sat in groups, it says, by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he did five things. Number one, he looked up to heaven. That is, he acknowledges his father. Secondly, he said a blessing, and I even note in your notes the the particular Jewish blessing that was often prayed uh, over the meal, and he may have prayed that very prayer. We don't know. Thirdly, he broke the loaves and gave them. Now, you ought to mark that word gave. Uh, It's a present tense verb. It means he gave and gave and gave and gave and gave and gave and gave, and he just kept on Giving. Now, I don't cover this in your notes, not in my notes either. How exactly did he do this? You know, did he break it off and it grow back out and he broke it off and it grew back out and he broke it off? We, we don't know. Uh, one particular uh, preacher, pastor, scholar that I listen to says, I like to think of it that he put the bread and the fish in a bag. Perhaps the little boy had a little sack of some sort that he had brought it with. And so Jesus blesses it and just reaches in and just keeps pulling it out. Pulling it out, pulling it out. We, we don't know because Mark's not interested in how he did it. Mark is interested in the one who did it. And we'll see another great lesson about that in the next story where Jesus walks on the water and how Mark includes a particular, well, since we're just freewheeling it tonight, uh, in, in Mark chapter uh, 6, verse 45 and following, you have Jesus walking on the water. And you have this very fascinating phrase in Mark that's not in either Matthew or Luke. They also have the walking uh, on the water. But they have this very interesting phrase in Mark. If you look down at it for just a moment, verse 48, he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch, 3 to 6 a.m. in the morning, uh, about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and here's the phrase, he meant to pass by them. Now, I cannot tell you how many times I've had college and seminary students be just bumfuzzled by that phrase. You mean, you mean he was just going to walk past them because he didn't care? Or was he kind of playing with them? And when I get to that message, which I've already prepared, I'm going to give you like eight different views of what people think he meant by the phrase, he would pass them by. But here's what I think is the answer. Both in Exodus with Moses... And in Kings with Elijah, when God showed himself to them, he said, and I will pass by you. And in essence, what he did was he revealed himself in his glory, both to Moses and also to Elijah. In other words, it's a declaration of deity. And only Mark, neither Matthew or Luke, has the phrase he meant to pass them by. That may also explain why... You would think that if any gospel, this is, by the way, the same story where Peter walks on the water and gets out there and then sinks and Jesus has to save him. I would have thought that that would have been in Mark because Mark is told from Peter's perspective. But again, I think it's the same as he walks on the water as it is when he feeds the 5,000. He's not concerned about the people in the boat. 
He's concerned about the glorious one who's passing by. He's not concerned here with how he did it. He's concerned with the one who did it. And so that's, again, an evidence of Mark's strong focus upon the deity and the glory of Christ as revealing God, both to disciples and here even to the 5,000. So one more time back to 41, and we'll close down for tonight. He took the five loaves and the two fish, looked up to heaven, number one, said a blessing, number two, broke the loaves, number three, continually gave to disciples, number four, to set before the people, and number five, he divided the two fish among them all in verse 42 you say oh my goodness what was the reaction very simple they all ate and were satisfied they all ate and they were satisfied now we do find out from john's gospel and this is actually worth the segue tonight that as i mentioned earlier they tried to make him king if this guy can feed 20,000 people like that, this is the guy we need to follow in overturning Roman oppression and restoring the glory of Israel. Well, Jesus withdraws. And as we see even in the Mark text, he goes up to pray. He comes and he helps out the disciples. He winds up landing later, and the crowd find him. They follow him. And basically, Jesus then preaches that great bread of life sermon where he says, I am the bread of life, and if you're going to be my disciple, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. He also slaps them upside the head and says, the only reason that you're following me is because you ate yesterday and were satisfied. You're satisfied with that kind of food, but I have another kind of food that's bread and meat unto eternal life. And at the end of John 6, it says from that time on, because they said, these are hard sayings. Who can hear them? And at the end of John 6, it says, From that time on, many followed him no longer. In other words, Jesus was anti-church growth, at least on this occasion. 20,000 following him. Man, we're ready to build a big arena and go live on television and go live on the Internet and start blogging and start, you know, doing all. And he says, no, basically, I don't need 20,000 who are following me simply because they like the show. And that's why he then looks at the disciples at the end of John 6 and says, will you two also go away? And Peter nails it again. It's one of Peter's best days. Where would we go? You and you alone have the words of eternal life. And so what I'm saying tonight, which, again, I don't really say so much in my notes, is that this is a major dividing point in his ministry. In many ways, it is the climax of his Galilean ministry. And in many ways, it turns where people begin to move away from him, begin to question him, begin to doubt him because he's not the kind of Messiah they want him to be. If Jesus fits their preconceived notions, fine, we'll follow him. But if Jesus doesn't work out to be the kind of Jesus I want, then thank you very much. I'll go find me another Messiah somewhere else. So the text simply ends, verse 43, and they took up 12 basketfuls, one each, I believe, for the 12 disciples, broken pieces and fish, and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. And so it's a remarkable story. It's an incredible miracle. It is a clear declaration of his deity, and yet when human beings in their sinfulness see deity face to face, they really are forced to do one of two things. 
They'll either drop the knee and worship him as their Lord and their God. Or they'll say, "Mm, this is too hard. And they'll walk away. My prayer is that for all of us here tonight, walking away will not be an option. Because he is the bread of life, because he is the living water, we will bow the knee and confess him as our Lord. And we will let him not only feed us in terms of our physical needs, but we'll also let him feed us what we really, truly need, and that being the bread of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this passage. We, we thank you that uh, in your word you saw fit to reveal it and um, have it recorded in all four Gospels. That tells us it's very, very important. It is a, a, a watermark, a, a, a pivotal point in the earthly life of Jesus. And, Lord, we pray that we will respond in faith, not because we love the show, not because we love the food, but because we love the provider and we love the Savior, that good shepherd who has compassion on dumb, stupid, foolish, helpless sheep like we. So, Lord, may this text be an encouragement to our souls tonight. And even, Lord, as a few moments ago, when when there was at least the concern in this area about the possibility of a tornado, Lord, you're the God of the storm. You control the tornado. You control the hurricane. You control the tsunami. We may not always understand how and why you control them in the way that you do, but that's not our business. Our business is to always fall down in faith and trust And the God who loved us so much, he gave his son to be the bread of life, having his body broken on a cross at Calvary. And a God who loves us so much that he gave us the living water, one who poured out his very life on our behalf, that we might indeed have that life which is eternal and that life which will never end. So may we be comforted and encouraged by the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, thanking you, Lord, that you are faithful to meet us both where we need you spiritually physically, and in every way. And we bless your name this evening, praying this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.